We continue today to study the Word of God in the Matthew's Gospel, looking into the end of Matthew chapter 9. I think you'll find, as the Lord guides these things, and I did not engineer it, I promise you, that we are in a passage here that forms a wonderful complement to our missions conference that we had last weekend as we're seeing the sending out of people to speak about Christ, to declare the good news of the kingdom, come in Him, and to make Him known. Just before where I'm going to read, I'm going to read beginning at verse 35, we see the heavy rise now, the sharp rise of opposition to Jesus. That's really beginning at this point, and of course will intensify as he was casting out demons, and Pharisees actually said about him, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. In other words, this authority of Jesus that we've been talking about, they were saying, is from Satan. He's later going to answer that in chapter 12, but right now he answers it by doing good and by ministering to people. Listen as I read Matthew 9, 35 through verse 15 of the next chapter. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas. Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, so freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey, no extra tunic or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, Search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your presence rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. For I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. 
This is the word of the living God. Retired TV news anchor man Tom Brokaw has made quite a name for himself in the late stages of his broadcasting career and now even in retirement, largely as a result of a book he wrote some years ago called The Greatest Generation. I'm sure many of you have read it. It contains collected stories about the entire generation of people who came to age in America and grew up during the Great Depression years and then fought in World War II. This is my father and mother's generation. It's a generation that's represented here this morning by folks now primarily in their 80s and older. Brokaw says this is a generation who should be honored. For he said, in essence, that America has thousands of ordinary heroes in our midst. And he wasn't talking about some elite group either. He was talking about the broad expanse of the American population, the common folk of America who responded in the early 1940s and onward to be drafted, to be wounded, maybe even to die on foreign fields. He was thinking about the young women, barely out of high school, who went into factories to make airplanes, and the young men who flew those airplanes, people from Kansas and Vermont and Ohio, who largely gave up their youth to surrender it to a compelling cause that their country put before them. Amazingly, these were modest people. Brokaw points out, and most of us know this from experience, that many of these former soldiers or sailors or Marines never said much about what they saw in foreign places like Guadalcanal or Anzio or Omaha Beach. They were the greatest generation because they plunged headfirst into the fulfillment of a mighty task, an all-consuming task of service that was asked of them. And together, each one doing a little bit, they changed the world for freedom. As you read about Jesus commissioning 12 disciples who are for the first and only time in Matthew called apostles here in this text, to send them out to preach and heal with the same authority from God that he himself had, you may think, well, here is the greatest generation as far as Christianity is concerned. This is the greatest generation of of all time. The apostles also fought a war, but they fought it not with swords or chariots, They fought it with truth and with the weapon of the Holy Spirit and the power of God as they told good news about the arrival of a great kingdom of righteousness. But the Bible is not exalting these people alone here, these 12 in this passage. If we would get the bigger picture as we can from numerous other passages brought to bear on this one. The Scripture says that garden-variety Christian people today are also called to join in and be part of Jesus' great generation of gospel ambassadors. 
telling the astonishing truth of his cross and resurrection in the midst of an alien and a hostile world who doesn't want their message. Now, you might notice that Matthew 10 begins another long teaching discourse of Jesus. There are several of these in Matthew. This is the second one. The first was three chapters long, Matthew 5 through 7, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. The teaching discourse of chapter 10 doesn't really have a name as such. It's never been uh, as familiar, at least, to to people in general as the, the Sermon on the Mount, and it doesn't have a particular name that it goes by other than missionary instructions for the taking of the gospel. It actually begins at chapter 10 and verse 5 and continues throughout that chapter as he instructs them about how to do ministry in his name. Now keep in mind, this text predates what we call the Great Commission of Christ at the end of the gospel. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is that, that commission as the risen Christ about to ascend into heaven, gave his parting instruction to every disciple, not just the twelve, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That came about two years later. But here we see a first stage missionary discourse or missionary word of instruction about how the disciples of Jesus might serve humanity. And the way they're going to do this is if they can begin to see human beings with the same sort of eyes that Jesus has, and then go and call out and seek those who belong to Christ in a lost generation. Matthew 10 proves that the mission of Jesus Christ does not belong to him alone. In the face of adversity, in the face of Pharisees who were trying to say he was satanic, he didn't retreat. He didn't go into a defensive posture and start to argue about that. He actually went into an aggressive posture to begin to widen his ministry by giving its authority and message to others who could carry it forward. And I believe with all my heart that there are instructions and calls issued here in these words that apply to us, not just to the 12 apostles, as we're called to be part of the great generation of Christian witnesses. I just have two broad points today. They're simply stated. One will keep us in the last verses of chapter 9, and the other will take us into chapter 10, the first 15 verses. First of all, I ask you to see here that we have to know the great shepherd's heart. We need to know the great shepherd's heart. I trust you understand that chapter and verse divisions of the Bible are something that were added long after the inspired books were written. The text of Greek, if you would ever look at an original manuscript page, barely had breaks in it at all, not even paragraph breaks in many cases. So the chapters and the verses are something that men imposed actually hundreds of years after the original versions of Scripture were written. And I say that because I think there's a poorly placed chapter division here. The last few verses of chapter 9, beginning at 35, really belong with chapter 10. Chapter 10 could very well have begun at 935. It's not somehow separated. It's, it's absolutely a part of what chapter 10 is about. And the key insight for these few verses at the end of chapter 9 
I think of is verse 36, where in the midst, and you remember what Jesus was involved in doing, everywhere he went, crowds came, they pressed in, they all wanted something from him. They wanted healing, they wanted a blessing, they wanted strengthening. And Jesus was looking at these crowds day after day. People lined up, people sitting in, in banks, you know, in the out of doors, outside a house maybe, just waiting to hope they could get some contact with him. And it says, he saw the crowds and had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now that sentence, when you pause and think about it, tells us volumes about what made the heart of Jesus Christ beat as it did. He understood what people were really like. And he wants us as his disciples to learn to look at humanity with these same eyes of compassion and pity. You see, Jesus was able to see right inside of people. We're told numerous occasions somebody hadn't even spoken, and Jesus knew what was in what was in the person's mind. He diagnosed people. He saw their inward nature, not just their external appearance. Now, if he had responded to people the natural way or the way that people would have deserved to have him respond, he could have easily been motivated by wrath and anger and, and annoyance at these people and their sins and their dullness of understanding and faith. But that isn't the way he saw people. Instead, we're told here that he was looking at people tied up in inner knots of helplessness and hopelessness, and his response to that was one of mercy. I go to what animal experts have taught, and I believe these facts are correct, that people who herd sheep say that sheep have several odd behaviors, but I think probably the oddest of all is the behavior of a sheep when it is called by those who tend it a cast sheep. A cast sheep is one that somehow has gotten tossed on its back. And it's my understanding that a sheep can actually be in that condition and, you know, sort of beat its legs and, and roll back and forth And after all, it has a heavy layer of wool and a heavy layer of fat, and it just isn't ambidextrous enough to exactly right itself very easily. And so here's this animal on its back, kicking and struggling and and beginning to have labored breathing and exertion, and it cannot solve its dilemma. And it can actually die in that condition if someone doesn't help it and turn it over. Could that perhaps have something to do with the way Jesus saw people as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless? Sometimes I like to, I really don't spend much time in malls. I shouldn't imply that, not that there's anything wrong with being in a mall, but sometimes if my wife has an errand in the mall and I don't want to go particularly to the store she's going to, I'll just sit. I like to watch people. Do you ever do that? You just watch the crowds of people passing by, people of amazing variety. What variety, human beings. 
just looking out at all of you. We're a fairly homogeneous group here, but, but you've got a lot of variety to you. And it's even greater when you get out there in the general public. And you see folks coming along, and you try to maybe think about them and what's going on in their lives. There are some people who are happy, and they're very animated and exuberant as they might be talking to each other. There are others that are scowling, or they look angry or sad. People who are tired or harassed that they have to be running all these errands. And you just wonder, what are their lives like? What's going on inside of these folks? But you know, most of us at least are not naturally drawn to strangers, are we? If we look at big crowds of people that we don't, haven't been introduced to, we don't have any particular reason to know them or care about them or be involved in their circumstances, we usually, you know, we don't physically do it, but we're usually sitting there kind of like this, you know. I'm glad to watch all you folks, but don't bring all your problems too close to me. You know, I've got enough of my own problems and, and my own circle or my family or the, the people I work with or something. You know, I, it's interesting to watch the public, but I just don't really want to get involved with all of you. It would be awkward and messy for me to have to care or be involved with all of those lives. And so we kind of get jaded and cynical towards people in general, and we even regard them as annoyances or disturbances to our time. I would say often the very last attitude we have naturally towards strangers is one of godly compassion, such as Jesus had. But when you know the Bible's truth about the brokenness of human sin and and what it has done in your own life, and when you understand that you too were exactly in the condition of that cast sheep on your back with your legs struggling, unable to put yourself upright before God in a spiritual way as far as righteousness is concerned, if you really understand that about yourself, then you begin sometimes to think about that hostile, rude person you meet or that, that domineering person who just sort of bulldozes over everybody else, and you think, I wonder if that person is also like a cast sheep. And all their kicking and flailing and And the anger that exudes from that life is really about the fact that they're on their back and they don't know how to get upright before God. You see, Jesus said that people without him in their life are harassed and helpless. You have to know this first about yourself, but when you do, and when you know that it is Christ who has set you upright again, it begins to humble you and change your outlook towards other people. By the Holy Spirit working in you, I suggest that you and I as Christian disciples can begin to wear, if you will call them this, the glasses of Christ to see human beings. Suddenly, you know, strangers aren't just people interrupting our little cocoon of personal peace and security and fulfillment. Nor are they people just to be manipulated or bulldozed over for us to somehow gain from them or or use them. It's as though we begin to have God's x-ray vision to see through them into their deep hurts and their brokenness and how they really are apart from peace with God that can be known in Christ. Jesus spoke to that again in John chapter 10. There you may know he said, I am the good shepherd. 
who lays down his life for the sheep. And I know my sheep, and they know me. He came in compassion to gather up and care for those who were ordained by God to belong to God's worldwide flock, both Old Testament and New Testament, and in the days of today as well. You see, the mission of the good news of the gospel is not at all motivated by God's disgust at people's awful sins. It arises from his deep pity and his heart of love for their obvious and desperate needs. We need to know the shepherd's heart if we're going to be involved in his ministry, and that's an absolute prerequisite. Now, the second issue before us then in this text at the as Matthew 9 goes into chapter 10, is the suggestion that people who do know the shepherd's heart will begin to answer the shepherd's call. We can't answer the shepherd's call unless we see needy people the way he does. But when we do see that, then we begin to act on it. Now, there are several things here to mention under this second point of answering the shepherd's call. In Matthew 9, 38, Jesus urged us, or charged us really, to pray that his disciples would see humanity through his eyes. We would pray for those who would see people this way and then would deliberately go and reach out to these people. Now, the image changes. There's a mixture of imagery here. One is shepherds and sheep, and suddenly it shifts here in verse 37, to the idea of a harvest. They're both, of course, agricultural images suited to that day. Jesus moved rather easily between the two pictures, but now he's talking about a harvest that needs gathering. Now, I'm no farmer, that's for sure, but my grandfather was, and I can recall some things from childhood that that taught me a little bit about what farmers face and what they have to do. I remember times when my grandfather would have uh, gone out and cut hay, and maybe it was already baled up and laying in bales in the field. They were much smaller bales in those days than these mammoth things they use today. And here was the hay out in the field, and the weatherman came along and said, it's going to rain for three straight days. Well, usually my dad would get a call, and sometimes I'd be involved in this rescue mission too, and and we would have to go to the farm and help granddad get the hay in before the rain came and spoiled it. In other words, there was an urgency to that kind of harvest. You had to do it with a particular sense of timing, and I'm sure that applies differently to other kinds of gathering crops. Farmers are under all kinds of deadlines dictated by weather and season. But I remember how urgent it was. Well, can we you know, it might be late at night, and we would have brought in three, three loads, a, a big piled-up wagon three times from the field on a Saturday afternoon, and we'd calculate, well, can we delay supper and bring in one more load because it's going to rain tomorrow? There was an urgency to it. Well, once we see human beings in the state of absolute crisis as Jesus saw them, we begin to realize there's an urgency These lives need to hear the message of hope in Christ, and they only have a certain span of lifetime on this earth in which to hear it. So the opportunity is short, and the need is absolutely imperative. And this need must be addressed with evangelistic prayer. 
Matthew 9.38 says, Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. I really believe that when Christians stop praying for missionary endeavors of all kinds, whether local ministries or worldwide ministries, it usually means people of that church have stopped believing that by the grace of God, working through faith, Jesus Christ really does transform people eternally and change their entire destinies. If you believe that, you will be called to pray for it and to pray for the endeavor. And so we move beyond prayer as we go into chapter 10 and and understand that we're not just supposed to pray and sit and expect somebody else is going to respond. Of course, others will respond. And we may not be the ones who go to the foreign field. Absolutely. We may be, but we may not be. But as we pray and moving into chapter 10, we understand that If you're praying about this, you're also going to get up and respond to it in some way, and it might mean going ourselves to the local field. Our missions conference last week was called Crossing Picket Fences. The implication was every missionary goes into a different culture with a message. Now, your culture change of taking Christ to somebody might be as slight as a fence across the backyard. That's probably not a very big cultural gap. But on the other hand, there's a person there with a a different life and a different background, and you need to learn to love that person for Christ and speak the gospel into that person's categories of understanding. But I think the implication is here that as we pray for the Lord of the harvest to bring workers, we understand that we ourselves in some ways, are going to be the answers to what we're praying about. I think it's too easy to sort of have a cop-out here and see that the very next thing, pray the Lord of the harvest, and then the next thing, what is it, at the beginning of of chapter 10? Oh, well, apostles, they'll do the job. Here are these 12 special individuals. The word apostle means one who is sent, and they're called apostles here. They had a unique role in the calling of God. They had an office that nobody will ever have again. Nobody had before them. Nobody will ever have it. If somebody tells you there's an apostle around today, you're hearing false doctrine. There are no apostles today. Their office was a one-time thing destined to establish the church and to receive the revelation of the New Testament books. It was a foundational office, in other words, not one that was even intended that it would continue. And once the church was launched and the Scriptures were given, that office passed away. But here we read about these people sent out by Christ with a remarkable degree of his own authority. Apparently, they were able to come to someone and say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, be healed. May your seeing, may your blind eyes see. May your leprosy be cleansed. And it happened. That's remarkable. That's the same authority we've seen working through Christ himself. We don't have their calling, and we don't have the fullness, at least, of their spiritual empowerment. I'm not saying we have none, but we don't have the fullness of it that they had. However, what follows here in chapter 10 by way of basic instructions given to these apostles do apply to us in many ways. And I want to spin these out for you a little bit. Because the harvest is God's harvest. And Jesus requires that people who would be involved in this harvest be people who are called. 
Matthew 28, if we would bring it in alongside here, makes it very clear later on, after the cross, after the resurrection, that every single Christian is called to be a harvester and to be an assistant shepherd in some way. He doesn't want self-appointed workers. He wants those who've been called because they possess His Holy Spirit and because they already see humanity through the eyes with which Jesus Himself sees them. You see, the Son of God is a great delegator. You know this perhaps in your workplace. We value people who learn how to reproduce work that they can do through other people. It's great when you've got one talented leader or manager in an office or a a corporation, and he, maybe he's just extremely effective and can plow forward, but there are people who are extremely effective that way who just, they have to do it alone. They aren't able to teach anybody else. And then there are people who can do it and who can teach it and delegate it, who reproduce themselves many-fold through those who work with them. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. As opposition to him was arising, he said, look, This isn't my ministry alone. It's a ministry I will give away, and it will conquer the world because I'll even be able to step out of the scene at one point, and it will go forward. Notice how the missionary task of Jesus Christ is aimed at a specific flock. That's one of the lessons here. A flock that God has called from all eternity. Notice it says the 12 apostles were sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that is an instruction for them that does not carry over for us. That was unique to them. People puzzle over this. They say, well, what, what was wrong with Jesus? Didn't he understand the book of, what the book of Acts would say, that the gospel was for everybody, to all the nations, to the Gentiles and everybody else, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts? You know, that's the theme of Acts. Of course, Jesus understood that that would be the theme of Acts But what he also understood was in the economy of God from Old Testament to New, his people Israel, the ethnic Jews, were being offered their final opportunity to fulfill the covenant, to see God's Messiah and receive him in faith. In his lifetime, as he went to the cross, he was saying, in effect, look, my people have rejected God's call to them have turned away from it for decades and centuries. Now I am come. Remember John says he came to his own and his own would not receive him. It's as if men around me, you need to give Israel their last opportunity. Their last opportunity to be fulfilling the covenant of God that they were called to. And we well know that, of course, a Jewish person can come An ethnic Israelite can come and receive Christ today, but since his cross and since his resurrection, this instruction has been changed. It's been widened. It's been opened up. Romans 1.16 has Paul saying that the good news of Christ is, quote, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes the Jew first, but also the Gentile. And now this instruction is, has been broadened. But you see, the point is still, we also are called to go out and find God's called ones. Who is God calling? Now, I'm not going to enter the whole doctrine of election here today, but I'm certainly touching it. I'm, I'm skirting it, if you will. God has called from all eternity those who will respond to Christ. And we are called to bear witness so that those called ones will hear the message and will respond. 
we are called to go to what we often call the Israel of God. This is a broader group than just the Jews of the Old Testament. The Israel of God includes every saved person, Jew and Gentile. We are called to go to those whom God has already decided would respond to the good news of eternal life. There's another interesting instruction here in chapter 10 that I think applies to us uh, just as it did in those days, and you could spin out a lot more than I have time for. But notice how in verses 8 through 10, he speaks to them very practically about how they are to go out, what they're to take with them, how it's to be financed. I think Jesus, in a word here, is saying to his disciples, his apostles, that they should expect him to be their quartermaster. You know that we practice short-term missions in this church, and we have to investigate and plan where are they going, what are the airplane tickets going to cost, you know, what's involved, what's the ministry they're going to do. And it, it takes quite a bit, actually, to organize a group of a 12 or 20, whatever, people to go and do a short-term ministry. Well, that's exactly what we had here, the very first ever short-term missions trip. And interestingly, Jesus said, look, don't worry about what it's going to cost. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about where you're going to stay. Don't even take an extra pair of sandals if you should lose one or, or get a hole in it or the, the thong breaks or something. Just go and lean by faith on me to supply what will be needed for your ministry because, and he gave some broad principles here, The worker who goes forward with the message of Christ is, it says elsewhere, worthy of his keep. It says it here, too, in verse 10. In other words, the one who who goes forward with the message of Christ doesn't charge for his message. He doesn't say, hey, folks, I'm I'm here in town to tell you about Jesus, and if you'll buy a ticket for $5.95, I'll be glad to tell you. No, not that. But the one who brings this good news freely given will be provided for by those who receive that good news. And there's a lesson for us here. By the way, Luke twenty-two thirty-six, 36, interestingly, kind of reverses this near the end of Jesus' ministry as he's looking forward to the time when he'll be gone from his disciples. If you go there, he gives almost opposite instructions. He said, you know, before I told you, don't take a purse don't take a staff, don't take extra clothing. In Luke 22, 36 and following, he says, now take those things. There's a different era coming. I wanted you to learn to depend on me. But you're going to need to know that ministry is also going to happen in a hostile environment where by depending on me, you'll also have to be prepared and wise as you go. Maybe that sounds confusing, but I think the abiding lesson for us is that, of course, ministry should have good planning. It should have budgeting. It should have good stewardship undergirding it. But having done all those things, let's know that what Jesus said to these first disciples is still true. Ministry done in his name is undergirded by his supply and his amazing provision in ways that we often cannot count upon. One more thing from this instruction of, to the, mission, the missionaries here is that he's telling them that as they go, they are going to make an eternal difference between people. You see that? 
going to the house, and it either receives you or it doesn't receive you. If it doesn't receive your message, if it rejects Christ, shake the dust off. That was a a ceremonial gesture that a, a Jewish person did that said, I am done with you. You know, you just sort of take the hem of your garment and shake it out as you leave, announcing, you have not received what I've brought. I have nothing more to do with you. And Jesus says, your message is going to make this kind of a difference in lives. And in fact, the the fact that you went there and you were rejected is going to mean it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those who reject your witness about me. You understand that that's true today? We take a, a message and we're delighted when somebody responds and somebody receives Christ, and we say, oh, look at that, a wonderful convert. But we're actually doing God's work even as people hear the gospel and bring their anger and their animosity and and their rejection of it and fix their eternal condition before God that way. I believe the missionary call of Jesus Christ is for everyone who knows him as Lord and Savior, everyone who possesses his Holy Spirit so that they can look at people with the glasses of Jesus on to see people as being harassed and helpless. No matter how angry they are, no matter how annoying they are, they're sheep on their backs with their legs kicking helplessly in the air. People need Christ. And if you know him, you're called to be his witness. You need to pray for those, at least those around you in your most intimate circle of association. Pray for those who don't know Christ. And live a life of transparency, both in deed so that your actions don't contradict your faith, and when appropriate, in word so that you can make Christ known. You can make a difference. Without going to New Guinea, without going to Peru, you can be his missionary. Quickly, as I close, let me remind you about a couple. Their names are Martin and Gracia Burnham. Martin and Gracia Burnham were everyday Christian people from a humble background. Martin was not an ordained minister. They went to serve in the Philippines with New Tribes Mission in 1986. After they had served there for 15 years, in 2001, they were kidnapped by Islamic terrorists, a small splinter group in the Philippines of of Islamic element that wanted to react against the Philippine government. They were held captive for more than a year, a little bit more than a year, almost a year and a month, I believe. And during their captivity, they actually shared food and lodging with their their captors, and the story was told later on how they, they turned from complete fear to a sense of pity for these Islamic men who were so angry, brandishing their weapons and uttering threats. And they began to tell these men about Jesus and saw them as lost souls. A raid by the Philippine military came to try to free the Burnhams when their location was identified. In the confusion of that raid, Martin Burnham was killed. Gracia escaped to freedom to tell the story. These two very ordinary Americans were part of a great generation of witnesses.
to the transforming truths of Jesus Christ. You may not have their experience. You probably won't. But every disciple of Jesus is called to the all-consuming task to see people through the shepherd's eyes of compassion and to make him known with integrity. And this, I believe, is your reasonable service before the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for the way we think about other people without you. Forgive us for the times we just shut those people out or exclude them or put them in a hopeless category. Call us to pray for them. Sensitize our minds and make our witness bold for the sake of your great name. Amen.